Welcome to episode 30 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming Cannes Film Festival, which starts on Tuesday, believe it or not, um, opening with The Great Gatsby, um, which Ryan has actually seen already and can talk a little bit about that. And um, we can, we're, we're also going to talk um, after that about Oscar year 1978 when The Deer Hunter won Best Picture. Um, but first we'll get started with Cannes. Okay. So I was just, I just threw that Gatsby thing in there because I know we didn't talk hmm. about it, but you might want to just <clears throat> give a little okay. bit of. Uh, I can sure. Huh. Um, so we have we have Can, we have Gatsby, um, and then we have the Oscar year. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm just a little fuzzy mm-hmm. in the head. I'm trying to think of. All right. So should we start with Can? Let's roll. Let's roll. Okay, so the Cannes Film Festival starts on the 15th. Um, it opens with The Great Gatsby. And the film festival, for the first time, has released a screening schedule. I think it's the first time. I don't think they did that last year. So you can see what days um, everything is playing. And it's an incredible lineup this year. It's probably one of the best that I've ever seen since I started going. Um, I think this is my fourth year. And this is Craig's first year actually going, and hopefully Ryan will come next year. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. When you when you haven't had a, a complete schedule before, um, do they do you sort of find out about the movies a day or two in advance? Yeah. When you get there, you arrive, you, you stand in the press line, and they give you your bag and your schedule and your badge and everything else, and that's when you find out. Then you open it up and look. Oh, the screening schedule. Let's see what. You know, and since I always leave a few days early, I'm always dreading what they put for the last movie. Like last year, it was Holy Motors that I missed. Yeah. And this year, it's going to be... Craig and I are both going to miss the uh, Jim Jarmusch movie. Um, oh, and looks like Venus and Fur is Roman Polanski, too. Both of those. The final day? Mm-hmm. The final couple of days? Actually, we'll miss The Immigrant by James Gray because we're traveling on the 24th. So, oh shoot, we'll have to catch up with those. But we'll be seeing in competition uh, Jean Jean et Jolie, uh, Le Passé. These are just the I'm just shouting out the well-known ones: Jimmy P, Borgman, which I'm really looking forward to. Inside the Well in Davis. When, what day is Lou that? Lou Davis. That uh, looks like the 19th. Great. Um. So yeah, there you go. Which one are you looking forward to the most? Which one am I looking forward to? Um, As those hideous people in the forum said, her taste is so mainstream. (laughs) And it's true. To a degree, it is very mainstream. If she'd only look outside her comfort zone, she'd find, you know, answers to blah, 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 blah. Well, my complaints are about the mainstream. They're not about the fringe, so... Uh, so to that end, yes, of course. So I'd be looking forward to Nebraska <laughs> because uh-huh. it's the most mainstream. But but I'm looking forward to all of them. I mean, for for me, going to Cannes is always a big surprise every year because the films are very surprising. Uh, you know, I have no preconceived ideas of, of them. And I like to sit down and watch them kind of take you to these different worlds by these different storytellers. And how about you? 
Um, inside Lewin Davis, Joel and Ethan Cohen, and partly because a they're my favorite filmmakers, but also the last time they were at Cannes was with um, No Country for Old Men, and of course I wasn't there for that, and I had to endure like six months of stupid people with their stupid opinions about the movie, trying to avoid <laughs> them until I actually saw it myself. So it's going to be great to be able to see it right away and then mm-hmm. not have to worry about it. I, I, there'll be no media blackout for me. I'll just be able to engage in the conversation instead of having to avoid it for six months. Mm-hmm. And in defense of mainstream films at film festivals, if they're going to be showing, and they will show, I'm sure, at least eight or ten films or more per day for ten days, that's 120 movies. Nobody can conceivably watch a fraction of those. So you have to select the movies that you want to see based on name name recognition, familiarity, and broad appeal, and uh, and buzz. And those movies are naturally going to be the mainstreams that bubble to the top. Uh, right. you, you're not going to go to Cannes and skip seeing Inside Llewellyn Davis, right? Yeah, it's just right. going to be at the top of your list, no matter whether it's mainstream or not. So that makes sense that you would you, that would be the focus of an award site. Right, and that's why, you know, that's why my... Um, my focus on the Oscar race tends to be good because I know what and and tend to focus on what is going to be in the race as opposed to you know i'm not I'm not writing film commentary for um you know the the cahier du cinema <laughs> I'm writing about the Oscars, so you know a lot of these movies have no chance of getting in it doesn't mean I still don't love to see them and and really like to see them, but I tend to focus a little bit more on the ones that that I think are going to be headed that way or should be headed that way. Believe me, you can you can beat the drum for a great movie like, for instance, Poetry, that Korean film that I saw. It wasn't going to get anywhere near the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I'm always surprised when they do, like a more. That was a shocker when it when it did as well as it did coming out of Cannes. That seemed like one that wouldn't have, you know. Really, even, even the Oscar-nominated um, films in the category of Best Foreign Language Film Maybe only two or three of those are going to be at Cannes, right? right? Absolutely, and, and a lot of the good ones don't even get there. You know, The Hunt mm-hmm. and, and Beyond the Hills, those were standouts and last year, and they didn't get anywhere near the Oscar race. Um, so in addition to the main competition, they also have, en, you know, en, en certain regard, <laughs> um, which, uh, by the way, Craig, the Salle du Boussy, that's the little annoying theater that's going to be hard to get in. Um, the the Grand Lumiere is the big theater, and that's the one that's easier to get in. But the Salle de Bussy tends is the smaller one. Um, that has the Bling Ring, Fruitvale Station. Those are you know highly anticipated movies. Um, they're also showing James Franco's As I Lay Dying. Um, and then they also have the Cannes Classics, which they're showing. Um, a, there's a big splashy thing for Cleopatra. They're having a big party for it too. Black tie. Black tie, which, are you going to go to that? I don't own a black tie, sorry, I can't make it. <laughs> and they're having, they're showing Vertigo also, which is great. And then, you know, they've just got all these little fringe film things going on, but it's, believe me, it's hard enough just to get into the main competition to see all those movies. For me, I tend to focus on those. I like to see, um, oh wow, did I just see The Birds? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's playing on the 25th, oh well. Um, you know, I try to focus on the main competition. I'd like to see, all, if I can, all the main competition movies because those are the ones that they, they select for their big awards. Um, it looks like Behind the Candelabra, 
Steven Soderbergh's movie is in com- main competition, even though it's going to be released on TV here on HBO and not get a theatrical release. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of great movies. So, How does that work when you have availability of tickets and seats? Um, I, it depends a lot on the badge that you've got. The type of badge you have, or yeah. do you uh, how, do you do you, uh, how do you acquire your, your tickets for your screenings? Um, yeah, no. If you're if you're you, you get you get in a badge hierarchy, which is a nightmare. <laughs> you get you know if you're top of the list, top of the heap, you get white badge, which is like what Jeff Wells has, which means you can stroll in any old time and get a great seat down on the floor. Uh, if you have a pink badge, you're you're kind of close to the white badge. Um, you can still get in anytime with even if the people have been waiting in line for two hours, you can just stroll in and get a seat. And once all those people are in, then they let in the blue badge, which is what I am. And you still get a pretty decent seat, but you pretty much still get the leftovers. Uh, and then if you're yellow badge, most of the time you don't even get in to those first-run screenings unless it's in the big theater in the, in the Grand Lumiere. Then you then you can get in maybe to the back seats or the side seats. And if you're a yellow badge, you really have to see the day after screening, you know, and then you get mm-hmm. a good seat. I, I prefer to do that because when I tried to, to cram in with a yellow badge after waiting in line for a really long time and then to get stuck on the side right behind a speaker and not be able to see the whole screen. I thought, fuck this. You know, these people are going to be begging me to see their movie in like two weeks in the U.S. Why should I bother? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that that part of it is a drag. Just time-consuming and frustrating, too, to to have to wait in line. How, how long are the lines, the wait in lines? Uh, how long, how much time is involved with that? Well, you have to get there. If you're a blue badge, you have to get there a minimum of, in the little theater, not the big theater. The big theater... Um, the 8.30 in the morning screenings, anything that's in the Grand Lumiere is always a wonderful experience. You know, you, you get in, everybody gets in, and it's this big, beautiful, comfortable theater. It's incredible. Um, the littler one, uh, you have to get there at least an hour in advance to wait in line. Sometimes, if it's a really hot ticket, you have to get in there two hours. And, and for those, um, a, a lot of times only a few blue badges are, are let in because all the whites and the pinks have come in already and taken all the seats. Some so you stand them. on standby for a long time without any, any guarantee of even getting a seat. At, right. Right. Yeah. That's right. not a good, and I guess, that, I guess I can understand that they, why they do it that way, but it seems really unfair to, to most of the people who in attendance, <laughs> especially like Americans, like, you know, we're so like our Americans are so used to kind of, you know, having things done our way. And so when I first went there and I had that yellow badge, I was totally flipping out. Um, I flip, you know, and I had to have the, the second year I went, I did, I did confront them and make them change it to a, to a blue badge. And in fact, Craig, if you get a yellow badge, you might even decide you can go in there and try to talk to them into giving you a blue badge. I lack that sense of entitlement that most Americans have, so I probably won't. I'll just deal with it, and I'll be happy because it's can, and I don't care. I know. I do. T- I, I kind of did, too, but I don't lack the entitlement, but I have personality disorder, which makes it, uh, me shy and hard to talk to people, but I had to do it because I couldn't spend another year doing what I had done the year before. Well, that's the thing is you 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 should have graduated because you've been there before. This is my first year, so if they if they want to give me a a shit brown pass, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what color it is. Right. Usually, you know? the rule is that first years tend to, unless they work at like USA Today, right. um, tend to get the yellow badges of the first year. But who knows? We'll, we'll have to wait and see. 
I'll be surprised if it's not yellow. I'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm, I'm going under the assumption that it will be yellow, so I won't be disappointed if that's what happens. Did you get a link for the press room on your thing to print out press room something or other? I think I did. I, I Yeah, I did, I think. I don't know what that is. I've never gotten that before. Something It's where they have Wi-Fi and stuff, right? Well, <clears throat> yeah. But the Wi-Fi is called the Orange Wi-Fi Room, and it's a different thing. You get it on your ba- on your badge. They give you a little card that has your Wi-Fi. Or at least that's how they've done it in the past. I don't know what the press room is. So I was secretly hoping that that meant I got a badge upgrade. <laughs> but I don't think it Could does. it be where they have filmmakers speaking before and after movies? Well, if, if that's so, if it's the press room, the actual mm-hmm. where they have press conferences... You can't get in there with a blue badge. You have to have a pink or a white. So if that's the case, then maybe maybe we did get upgraded, me and Craig, to, to pink, which would be so awesome. But it's just the email where they were get talking about a locker up. number. <laughs> let's not get our hopes up, though, Craig. Um, no, it's it's if you go on the if you go on the actual can site and you put in your reference number, and they have mm-hmm. those links on the right. Mm-hmm. One says press room. One one is for for connecting. Um, to get on on the press site, to get password on the press site, you know, to get the access to press materials on their site. But this looks like it's an actual press room. Mm. I don't know what that means. I've never seen it before. So. I'll look after the podcast and see. I can't remember what I've seen. I'm so, I'm in kind of a daze right now. I Because the last month it hasn't seemed like it was really happening. <laughs> and now, in the words of Will Will Smith, shit is getting real. <laughs> Shit's getting <laughs> and I'm real. I'm trying to freak out just a little bit. I know. Same here. Even though I've been so many times before, I just it's it's always the little details that do me in traveling wise. Like I'm sort of becoming more and more comfortable just in my own place. You know, like <laughs> I don't want to move around too much. But, you know, it's disruptive to pack and, you know, set yourself, you know, get your cats situated, make sure your plants get watered and all that crap, you know. So, but I feel lucky to be going, you know, I always, every time I'm there, every minute I'm there, I feel really lucky that, it, you know, to be there because it is such an exceptional experience despite the annoying things about it, the least of which is the you know are the french the the french people are just they're so polite and so nice and if you <clears throat> know how to talk to them and, and realize that they're polite then you have an easier time with them if you don't realize that they're just being polite then it'll always be an an irritating experience between you and the french people but probably the worst thing other than the constant stream of cigarette smoke that wafts everywhere um are the annoying American bloggers. I had to sit there and listen to two of them behind me during this movie, and, and I heard them, like, grading a more. I'm like, oh, I don't give it a B. I gave it a B. You know, it was just like, oh, shut the fuck up. I have to deal with this on the Internet, and when I go home, I don't want to sit here in France in the Grand Lumiere and have to listen to this shit behind me. <laughs> so, but, so that's probably the worst thing about it, the American invasion. Which makes the politeness of the French people all the more remarkable, really, because they have to, they're really not accustomed to that because they don't live with it. And so it's like the invasion of the Americans for two weeks in, in Cannes, and they have to really see what we're, what, what the worst of us are like. Right, right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the worst, the rudest of them all, though, of course, are the paparazzi who are very mean, and they will take you out. 
they're like they'll steal your workstation without caring for a second they they're like talk about entitled the paparazzi are like we're here we're taking all of your internet connections we're putting our huge ass cameras all over the desks you journalists forget it this is our room you know they're hardcore Mm -hmm. Aggressive. <laughs> very, very aggressive. So anyway, let's seg into the Gatsby, which which the can people call Gatsby Le Magnifique. Which <laughs> is so cute. That's what they're oh yeah, I guess so. They would be calling it the that. The great Gatsby is Gatsby Le Magnifique. So you saw that, Ryan. What'd you think of it? Uh I saw Gatsby Friday afternoon at a three fifty five matinee in, in three D. I thought I was running late. I was hoping that I would not miss the beginning of it, but I went into the theater and the lights were still up and there was absolutely no one in the theater. The theater was completely vacant and it was a big stadium theater, huge, you know, hundreds of seats. And so I thought they must have the sign wrong outside. And so I I stepped back outside and found the the person who gave me the 3D glasses and said, you know, there's not any, there are no advertisements, there's no previews, the lights are still up and there's no one in here. Are are you sure this is the correct theater? So he went to check and he said, I'll make sure that they get the movie started for you. It started about 10 minutes late. Oh my God, you were the only only an, one? I was the only person in the entire theater, so it was absolutely God. a hugely amazing VIP experience to see the Great Gatsby in an enormous theater all by myself. Jesus. I mean, literally, all, totally by myself. I think because it was a the first, it was the day of opening, and it was um, early in the afternoon, so a lot of grown-ups, of course, were still at work, and. I heard that it, I mean, we, we know that it's going to do really great business this weekend. It's going to make like $55 million. So it's not as if people didn't go see it this weekend, but just that particular showtime, I had it all to myself. So that made it, that was great. I went in, I have to say, a little bit probably cynical and skeptical because the previews I, I hadn't been too impressed by. I wasn't even, I didn't even know why it needed to be in, in 3D, for instance. But I was really curious to see what a visual stylist like Baz Luhrmann is going to do with 3D. And so I, I had to see it. You know, there's no way I was going to miss it. I will say for the first 10 or 15, 20 minutes or so, a lot of what I was thinking was, oh, no, oh, no, this is going to be... Uh, awful. It's going to be a really long two and a half hours, I thought. But I really got into the groove of it. It only took about 15 or 20 minutes before I really started to understand that it wasn't going to be anything like what I expected. It wasn't going to try to be slavishly faithful to the novel. Although the individual scenes and dramatic um, beats, and especially the line readings, all of the famous lines from the from the novel, the line readings by every one of the actors was like exactly as I've always imagined it all my life. So that I don't have any problem with it at all dramatically. Stylistically, it's just it was almost it was almost like an acid trip. It is so extremely uh, aggressively uh, extravagant. Uh, there's a scene early in the movie, you know, when they're in, uh, when they first go to um, uh, the 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 hookup apartment, you know, where he where he goes with Myrtle, you know, and they they get mm. drunk. And what they they drink, but when they get drunk, it's almost as if like they've like they've taken ecstasy or special K or something. Because from that moment on, the the movie just goes into a different realm of reality. It's just over the top, hyper real, and it worked for me because. Um, I think it, it really captures a sense of what the Roaring Twenties must have been like, just a, just a kind of really wild, exuberant time. And even though it's not, it's not doesn't didn't didn't strike me as realistic, it struck me as really faithful at the, to to the spirit of the novel. Hmm. I really liked it. I really I know that the, the critics have been giving it a really hard time. I know that it's gotten really disappointing reviews, but I was absolutely satisfied with it. Really glad that I saw it. Is it like Moulin Rouge? 
Yeah, in some ways, yeah. Um, um, and the 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 uh, freneticism, the 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 uh, the pace of it, the, you know, the two and a half hours just flies by. It seems like a ninety minute movie. I really thought that it was going to be that it was going to drag at two and a half hours, but it, it, the time just flew by, and so yeah. it has that pace. That the, in fact, there there are times like when they're racing from from uh, from West Egg to the city into Manhattan uh, along the the roads on Long Island. That it almost felt like Speed Racer, and uh, Craig, I know you're really fond of Speed Racer, but there were times the way that the, the car, the uh, the uh, the road trips were were filmed, it almost seemed like Speed Racer. Interesting. It sounds, it sounds terrible, but it really is not. It really worked for me. I'm gonna have to check it out. I, I was supposed to see it Thursday night, and I had other things to do, so I ended up skipping it. But I'm, I've been troubled just because I, I have a specific sort of impression of the novel in my head which is much more melancholy than what i'm seeing in in the trailers and what people are talking about and i and i'm i'm glad he captured sort of the uh, the debauchery aspect of it but um i don't know the novel has such a a sense of rot to it and this this amazing idea that he wrote it in 1925 four or five years before the crash and yet he seemed to be knowing that it was coming Mm -hmm. and 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 i'm wondering if the film captures that or if it gets caught up in in the in the more celebratory aspects of it i think you won't be disappointed i think there is a really feeling of of decay and rot especially uh where myrtle and her husband have the gas station um that that almost seems like an apocalypse the the setting around the gas station there is almost apocalyptic the it's everything is gray and 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 it looks like a desolate planet it doesn't even look like it could be in america or in it it really looks like off world almost it's so it's so desolate looking and it's bleak and it has some and of course the the the, the movie and the novel it's like the novel it gets darker and darker as it goes along and i think as far as that goes you're not you'll be dis, you won't be disappointed I suppose there's only one way to find out. Yeah, we're going to go see it. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to it, too. I just, um, you know, it's true that when people write a whole bunch of negative stuff, it starts to sound like, um, you know, it it definitely colors how you perceive the movie. Like, I was going to go see it at the Academy on Wednesday, I guess, but after I read the reviews, I just thought, oh, I can't, I can't. Um, because I think the one part of Moulin Rouge that I really don't like is the first 30 minutes when she's kind of um, shrieking and, and, you know, doing that weird, t- you know, trying to trying to turn on the Duke. And it doesn't really kick in to be the movie that I love until they start singing, um, you know, when, he, when, he's, when they connect, when, when the two of them connect. Um, and she stops with the shrieking and the shrilling. And, the, and I just worry that Gatsby is like that first 30 minutes of Moulin Rouge. There are parts of it like that because there are party scenes at his mansion, but but those party scenes, there's really only two of them, and um, they're show pieces, they're set pieces, but they don't. Then they're over, you know. Then, then there's some, some really, there are a lot of really quiet, claustrophobic moments too. Yeah. Does it ever connect emotionally like Moulin Rouge? Does it ever get to that point of like, wow, you know, it just breaks your heart? It's heartbreaking, but at the same time, I, it's not. It's not. It's not. You don't. Don't identify with with as many of the characters as you do in Moulin Rouge, because really the only really truly likable character, the only really character who has a, has a really good heart, is is Nick Carraway. You know, the rest of them are all to to, to one extent or the other um, 
uh, just in it for just, just greedy, uh, self-centered people. Mm. Even they're gasoline, all and they're all phonies. And so you don't really feel sorry for very many people, and you don't. So you, so it's hard, but you do really absolutely feel the tragedy at the end. Um. Well, that's yeah. I, I can't wait to see it with the Frenchies. Oops, I'm not supposed to say that. Is that that's like a mm-hmm. slur? But slur. But I can't wait to see it with with um, French audiences there because if they hate it, man, they're gonna boo really loudly. <laughs> but um, off the record, well, how about that? That they do that though. Isn't that a little bit? Shouldn't shouldn't adults be beyond that instead of booing a movie? I, I just don't understand why that's necessary. I, 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 I know, know it's a tradition, but it seems a like the most childish thing that a person can do. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go into a museum and start booing a painting or something. It's just, I don't understand Well, I, I think there, as opposed to here, it's sort of like um, it's a passionate response. And it, that's what I love about it. Like, it is a passionate response. They, they respond if they love it. They cheer and they clap really, really loudly. And they, you know, you can hear the love and the enthusiasm. And if they hate it, they go, boo, <laughs> boo, mm-hmm. like that. And... I don't know it's just to me it's it's part of the experience like it's it's not even it doesn't feel like they're going boo you know right i yeah that, i didn't know that i didn't know that that was the sound of that's unusual sound i know i didn't know it was like that it is but, you should hear I, it sometime because they they do that they they shout it that way they don't um mm. it's like they're just giving their uh, you know their emotional response right then and there i don't know there's something about it we'll we'll see if they do that or not I, i'm curious to see how they react it seems like they do it for for some movie every year, or more than one movie every year. So, I, I hope they don't. I, I hope they don't behave that way in regular theaters. <laughs> they probably they, don't. It's probably just because it's can. All right. So you guys ready? 1978, um, The Deer Hunter won Best Picture, and it was probably, um, you know, one of their better choices. It, it, you know, its main competition might have been Coming Home, which. Um, with Jane Fonda and John Voight, which also both of them are Vietnam movies. For some reason, Coming Home never quite got the same critical respect that The Deer Hunter did. And it could just be kind of inherent sexism, you know, a a story about a a woman's trajectory is not as interesting as this group of men kind of coming of age in Vietnam. Um, But... At any rate, uh, it was also the year that Warren Beatty uh, made Heaven Can Wait. One of my favorite comedies of all time, and, it's, and definitely one of my probably top two or three favorite comedies of the 70s. But it's it's one of my one of the funniest movies of all time, I think. Yeah. And one of the most touching. And it, it was also the year Terrence Malick made Days of Heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of the, the great 70s. Um, which was t- completely ignored, I think, except for cinematography. I don't know, but they said a lot of the same stuff about um, about that movie that they said about um, that they're saying about Terrence Malick's movies now. You know, um, it just—I think that the critics loved it, but apparently, it made no money at all. You know, but the but the critics were kind of blown away by his style. Mm-hmm. Funny because it was less vague and less elliptical than what his current movies are. Back that one was one of his more concrete, actually. Right, it was. 
for better or for worse. I um, I think that uh, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think coming coming home would have been a much better choice for for best picture that year. Um, I think it it didn't get the critical respect. It did get some, but it was basically dumped by the studio in February of that year. And um, Ryan, I think, talked about it last week about how the. Um, the uh, uh, United Artists executives co- were all jumping ship and forming Orion, and that was all happening at the time that um, Coming Home was supposed to come out. And nobody had any faith in the movie because you couldn't make a movie about Vietnam at that point. And it was one of the three that year that came out, and um, it, it, it was basically dumped in February, whereas buzz about the deer hunter was kind of building over the course of the year, and they released it. Just in New York and L.A. in December, which I think was the first time that that was done, and they did it just to get Oscar qualification, and then they pulled it from release to let the buzz continue to build. And then by the time the Oscars hit, it was it was like this this mythic mythic thing, and I think it was just handled much better. But I think um, looking, I just rewatched both of them for the first time in a really, really long time. And my sort of expectation was is that coming home wasn't going to hold up very well and that the deer hunter was going to remain this masterpiece. But I had the exact opposite response to it. And coming home hit me really hard. And I kind of felt a little indifferent to the deer hunter. It, it It's admirable. The performances are amazing. The individual pieces of it are powerful and, and vigorous. But as a whole, it just didn't seem to, it just hasn't, it didn't hold up as well. I think coming home probably had more of an anti-war message than the deer hunter was more ambiguous. Uh, I think probably a lot of war hawks could probably find something to love about the deer hunter. Mm. In fact, I believe that that uh, the Academy Awards were picketed that year by anti uh, anti-war activists because they thought that the deer hunter was too. Um, hawkish. Um, right. Yeah, a lot of controversy about the racism yeah. and the treatment of the North mm-hmm. Vietnamese. Right, um, and but I believe that people, if people, you could you could bring your own, you could own feelings to the Deer Hunter, and you could find anti-war sentiments in it if you were looking for that, and you could find pro-military sentiments if you were looking for that too. So I believe that really worked to its advantage because you got you get both of those factions. Coming Home though was distinctly and definitely an anti-war film. Well, it was certainly, yeah, it was anti-war as in anti-war. This is what happens to soldiers. But politically, it wasn't so much, um, I didn't think. But, but it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I've At the end, it really drags in when, when he's given the speech to the high school kids about the ridiculousness of war and, and how wrong it is that we make young men go over and fight these battles and it, how it ruins them for the rest of their lives. It's, it, it's definitely political. It's not political in the sense of that whether it's making a stand on, on Vietnam per se, but it's definitely taking a stand on war and 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 I, I think part of what's difficult about it is because there's no clearly defined villain in that film. We're not allowed mm-hmm. to hate anybody. Everybody right. is flawed. Uh, Jane Fonda's character, I mean, she's she betrays her husband, and whether you like her husband or not, she does a horrible thing to him, and yet she's completely justified because her husband is kind of a jerk. And even the John Voight character is, is at the, starts the film, he's bitter and 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 angry because he because of what's happened to him. Whereas I think in The Deer Hunter, you can channel, you can make the bad guy be the Vietnamese if you want, because they're these sort of stock bad guy characters, and there's somebody for you to hate and to feel good about hating them and to sort of root against. And I think that makes it a little, a little easier to watch. Mm. 
if that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Probably the people who are still feeling um, 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 beaten up by the whole Vietnam experience, and it was still really fresh in everyone's mind back then, I'm sure. Probably it was a lot more palatable to, to watch the deer hunter and feel as if that, that we were over there fighting some really evil people instead of instead of uh, having to be reminded that it's coming home did of what America actually did to 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 our own to our own boys, to our own soldiers, and to and to uh, American families. Uh, I, that's a little bit harder, harder to swallow. Can I read you guys some something from the yeah, book please. from the Inside Oscar? Um, just kind of trivia stuff that's semi interesting. Um, just as a kind of a background um, to it, uh, one of the problems with. Um, Coming Home as an Oscar movie was that it was produced by Jane Fonda and it was really seen as a Jane Fonda joint. Like it was her deal. And she mm. made a lot of the decisions, um, casting decisions. And I think that in that case, Academy wise, you know, that carried with it a little bit of baggage because of who Jane Fonda was and because of her political views, you know. So they were never going to look coming home as anything but Jane Fonda's political views, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, she got to take all the credit, and at one point, Julie Christie called her uh, when the Deer Hunter was starting to surge, and she said, "Wow, you know, the Deer Hunter is really anti, you know, is really, really bad. Its politics are terrible and racist." And 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 at that point, Jane Fonda started actively campaigning against the movie. Um, but of course, the Deer Hunter won in typical Academy fashion. I happen to think it's a great movie myself. Um, I do too. I'm not, I'm not talking. I'm not going to say anything bad about the Deer Hunter. Go ahead. I know. I, I don't. I you know, if I had to take political sides, I wouldn't necessarily agree. But to me, it, it shows the brutality of war. That movie right. and the heartbreaking awfulness, as it does killing deer. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, in a way that had never been done by any movie at all, and to, considering that Vietnam started in the mid-60s and that it took until 1978, 15 years for anyone to make a realistic movie about Vietnam, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, something so absolutely brutal and, and, and just intensely uh, realistic uh, really showed to people what, what was happening over there for the past 15 years that had never been seen before. It's extraordinary yeah. that, that, that uh, Chimino was able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, at some, I'll re- try to read you the, what the critics said about it. I mean, they were talking about it like it was basically reinventing cinema. So it, it was a big deal back then, that movie, in, in a lot of ways. But what I see in it now is just it's, it's painful to watch still. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so it says, um, Fonda chose Britain John Schlesinger to direct Coming Home. But as the shooting date approached, he felt less and less at home with the Americanness of the subject and dropped out. Hal Ashby enlisted and offered the romantic lead, a, dis- a disillusioned paraplegic to Jack Nicholson, but he was busy. Fonda tried to interest Al Pacino, then Sylvester Stallone, but had no luck. Fonda's producer, Jerome Hellman, who made Midnight Cowboy, said that Fonda's choice for second lead, John Voight, um, really wanted to play the part of the wheelchair veteran. When Fonda presented this idea to United Artists exec Mike Metavoy, he pleaded, we'll pay you another million dollars just to get a star. Fonda passed on the offer and hired Voight as her leading man, praising the devotion to his craft. Voight's been living in a wheelchair for two months. When a foot falls off of it, he reaches down with his hands to pull it back up again. Bruce Dern stepped in as the jilted husband, but confessed to reporters, I've been so many tortured vets. I would love to have played the John Voight role, but no one asked me. 
just before filming began, Waldo Salt felt it fell ill. So Ashby asked his favorite film editor, Robert C. Jones, to do rewrites on the set. By the time filming was finished, there had been so many revisions to Nancy Dowd's original script that the screen that the Writers Guild had to decide what credit what the credit would be. The Guild ruled that Dowd deserved story credit, while Salt and Jones could keep screenplay credit. Dowd still went went around um, disowning the movie, now called Coming Home, and Ms. Magazine agreed with her analysis of the final script. Its message seemed to be that doves are better than hawks in bed, and it was pious as well as sentimental. Hmm. Apparently, Jane Fonda had, had protested what she thought was... Um, you know, in a kind of an anti-feminist role, she said, I'm ashamed. It is a male supremacist film. Men choose between ideas and women choose between men. Um, she said that, Jane Fonda said that about... Coming home. About the final version. Yeah, I think she was dissatisfied because, she, you know, she had, she had, like I said, it was she had found, uh, become attached to the project in like 1973 because she met Ron Kovic, you know, from Born on the, the Born on the Fourth of July guy, and she was inspired to do the story then. And she it was her, it was she who who approached Dowd to do the first screenplay, and they held on to it since 1973. You know, Waldo Salt, of course, wrote uh, Midnight Cowboy and had worked with Schlesinger and won an Oscar for that too. So Schlesinger and, and Waldo Salt had a really good work relationship but as you say as Schlesinger I really respect him for this he thought that the Vietnam was so still so raw for Americans and still such a such an American subject that he couldn't do it justice and he knew he would he it would require him going to talk to paraplegics um, who'd come back from Vietnam who were in a veterans administration hospital and he had to talk to these boys and he I think what he said something like I don't think they're going to be in the mood to talk to some baroque English faggot about their war experience mm-hmm. in Vietnam he, uh, this is Schlesinger talking about himself, referring to himself that way. He just didn't, he bowed out. He decided to do Day of the Locust instead. So I really have a lot of respect for him that he thought that it was an American story that should be told by Americans. And it's, it's, um, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say his exact quote is, look, I can't talk to these guys. I don't know about piss bags. The last thing they need is a, Brit- a Baroque British faggot making this movie. Uh, yeah. How, where did you find that? Uh, there's an article that... Uh, Biskin did in Vanity Fair back in 2008 that talks about the sort of the competition between Deer Hunter uh, and Coming Home. Great, a lot of that the, in there. Cool. A lot of the things that Sasha you were saying that you were reading from uh, from uh, uh, Damian Bona's book is something that I, that had, I had read similar things in in uh, Hal Ashby's uh, biography. For instance, the Waldo Salt when he fell ill, the reason. They were rewriting the screenplay because Haskell Wexler was saying that there's they're making too much of the sex in this movie. I don't feel comfortable with all the sex that's in this movie. I'll do it. I'll, I'll be the cinematographer if we if we put it give it a little more of a political soul. And so Waldo Salt apparently was really difficult to collaborate with, and unless it was people he knew, and they were working on the script one afternoon, and uh, he, he said that he wasn't feeling well, he'd have to go home, and he had a massive heart attack that day. Oh, and God. it's the last screenplay, the last feature film screenplay that he ever wrote. Wow. And similarly, John Cazale was sick with cancer when he made The Deer Hunter and ended up dying mm-hmm. right after The Deer Hunter was made. Uh-huh. It's amazing, really, that, too, that, that uh, Hollywood had ignored Vietnam for so long, absolutely pretended that it didn't, didn't exist and didn't make any movies at all about Vietnam, and then suddenly two of them that are really on sort of opposite ends of the spectrum or two completely different types of movies were made the same year and that they were both so really, really great. I mean, um, 
We should mention that, in, that in, despite the fact that Coming Home didn't uh, win Best Picture, it did win Best Actor and Best Actress, mm-hmm. and it won Best Screenplay, and it was nominated for Best Director and Best Picture. So that's a very rare thing for Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture. To, and, right. You know, that doesn't happen very often. I think it, it was only the fourth time in Academy history that it had ever happened. Yeah, they really liked The Deer Hunter. Listen to this. Um, uh, to my mind, The Deer Hunter is a major achievement in American movies, opined Arthur Knight in The Hollywood Reporter. It is the great American film of 1978, David Denby of New York Magazine wrote. Just when it seemed time to announce that, the American, that American cinema has died as an art form, The Deer Hunter arrives to restore a little hope. Um, of course, every performance in New York and L.A. was sold out that week to see it. People were just clamoring. So you can see how it was set up to be the movie that was going to win. You know, it was the... Mm-hmm. It wasn't universally beloved, though. Andrew Saris didn't like it at all. Um, he called it massively vague, tediously elliptical, and mysteriously hysterical. It is perhaps significant that the actors remain more interesting than the characters they play. But isn't it interesting? I think he's correct that it is really elliptical and really vague, but isn't it amazing that the Academy would choose as best picture a movie that is so complex that you really don't even know what messages that it's giving you, whether it's a pro, pro-war uh, movie or an anti-war movie, you can't even be sure that it's that complex and that the structure of it is, is so strange. And that the it's music. In Philadelphia, it's in Pennsylvania, <laughs> then it jumps to Vietnam, then it jumps back to Pennsylvania, then back to Vietnam and back. This, no movies did that. That just wasn't, that doesn't follow the structure of yeah. typical Hollywood narrative at all. The interesting it, thing... It, about the the deer hunter and, and a lot of these movies from the seventies when when directors kind of ruled and you don't really see that um, as we head into the eighties and nineties is is that you can just click on the movie you can just look at a frame of it and you're stunned by the the composition of the direction mm-hmm. just Chimino with the deer hunter every shot is like that and you know it's kind of like William Friedkin with the French Connection it was like this weird action movie but the camera work is so incredible in it. Even now, when you look back on it, you never see anything like that now. People try to do it. They try to imitate it, but they can't get there. Um, just, I'm just saying that these directors had a way of you know, considering the frame that directors now... Some of them do, of course, David Lynch. And, um, but. and another thing, too, that as, as great as the directors of the 70s were, I have to say again, the cinematographers of the 70s were absolutely amazing. Gordon Willis... Vilmos Zygmunt, who who was a cinematographer on uh, The Deer Hunter, uh, shot some amazing movies in the 70s. And Haskell Wexler, who shot uh, Coming Home. Three guys who are as important to those films as the directors themselves. Yeah. I think. I think more so in a lot of cases. Yeah, uh, Hal Ashby told uh, uh, Haskell Wexler ha- ha- when the uh, nominations came out... Uh, one of the few people who didn't get nominated for coming home was Haskell Wexler. And Hal Ashby said, if I win, I'm going to do the same thing that I did for Jack Nicholson. I'm going to give you my Oscar. No. Yeah. And so, but it didn't happen. But that's what his intention was. He announced it ahead of time. But he was—he didn't care about the Oscar. He wanted Haskell Wexler to have it. Well, here I found the, that quote from Jane Fonda. It's, um, Fonda was also um, busy campaigning for the Oscar, telling reporters, the movie means more to me than any movie I've ever done so far and if Coming Home wins awards it means that it's going to be released and the audience um, I know is I'm sorry I'm such a bad reader Mm, Um, 
It's, it's also that I kind of sit in the half dark when I'm doing these. <laughs> like I, I tried to read that thing last night, last week from Pentimento, and I, the room was completely dark when I was trying to read out of that book. <laughs> no, people don't realize that. So <laughs> and people just think, he's bit. illiterate. I can't read. <laughs> I know, the same here. I was like, she reads her daughter books like that? Oh, God, I feel like I'm in class. It's all, Sasha, will you read the next paragraph? <laughs> no. Um, it says, uh, okay, okay, okay. Um, and the audience I know is there for it will be able to see it in large numbers. The letters I've gotten from veterans um, all the way to the guy who was wounded in World War II and hasn't made love to his wife in 30 years. The movie changed their relationship. The San Fernando Valley News predicted um, the San Fernando Valley News <laughs> predicted the Fonda victory because Hollywood wants to forgive her for being right about Nixon. Then Fonda received a phone call at one in the morning. It was Julie Christie. She was hysterical, Jane reported. They had shown The Deer Hunter at the Berlin Film Festival and people were screaming. Christie said herself to Variety, the film presents the Viet Cong as subhuman and sadistic, though they effectively resisted both France and the United States, which possessed enormous means of welfare. Or welfare, <laughs> which possessed enormous means of warfare. In Hollywood, Fonda began campaigning against the deer hunter. I hope it doesn't win, she told the Los Angeles Examiner. I haven't seen it. I'm afraid to. My friends told me about it, though. And I just think it's amazing that good people can see the movie and not even consider the racism. You know, I will say that's one thing that really does bother me about the deer hunter. You know, I lived in uh, in, uh, in Asia for a long time, and so I have maybe... Uh, I slight sympathy for, for the, or sensitivity to that, but it does seem like movies. There, are, one thing about most, a lot of movies like The Deer Hunter is they're all about how hard, how difficult war is for the American boys, and they never consider how difficult it is for the people that we, in whose countries we invade. And I wasn't able; I didn't have time to watch The Deer Hunter as I hoped that I would have before this podcast, but I did uh, sort of skip through and watch certain scenes that I know really had a big impact on me. I watched the scene, the very first scene, when they first are, when you jump cut in there in Vietnam, and um, um, uh, Robert De Niro is, is uh, passed out on the ground there. When he comes to, and that uh, the Vietnamese soldier throws that grenade, Craig, in the hole where that family mm-hmm. is hiding down in the hole, mm-hmm. I never realized before, but I'm not entirely sure that that's, that's a, that that guy is Viet Cong. I believe he might be South Vietnamese because that's a North Vietnamese village that they're in for sure. The South, the North Vietnamese did not have helicopters. The village, the, the helicopters strafing that village are North or South Vietnamese American helicopters. And the guy who throws the grenade in, into the hole with that Vietnamese family, I believe, is a South Vietnamese person who would have been trained by American soldiers. So that's really weird. That they that's a, that's a great point. I'm going to have to rewatch that scene because I had it in my head that he was North Vietnamese, but that just shows my American stupidity and not being able to tell the two apart. I, I had always thought that before, too, but then I watched it this time. And I thought, wait a minute, there, how can this be? Because it's not, it doesn't make sense with the geography and, and, with what, and with what happens next. So I think Robert De Niro, when he gets that flamethrower out and kills the guy because of what he's seen him do, he's actually killing an ally. Interesting. It's a, yeah, it's the way I took it. And so it's really, so that's one thing about the deer hunter that I do. In spite of the fact that I'm, it makes me uncomfortable, I'm really impressed that it's so complex and so confusing and so um, um, vague about morality that it could that, that people could accept that well enough to give it the best picture Oscar. I think a lot of people just didn't understand it. Probably. That's probably yeah. more it. Um, I felt like the, the depiction of the, the Vietnamese in that movie um, was was reflective of the time, you know, of, of mm-hmm. how uh, Americans viewed the enemy. It took mm-hmm. a long time for that to go away. I mean, wasn't it even in Platoon? 
Definitely. And it, was, and it was and it was taking a step about the horror of war. It wasn't it wasn't trying to lay out the good and the bad of the Vietnam War per se. It was talking about the horror of war, and part of the horror of war is the enemy that you have to fight. And it it, it, it the movie. I don't think I don't think you can criticize the movie for not trying to be well-rounded in its treatment of the enemy because that mm-hmm. just was not the movie that it intended to be and didn't need to be. There were so many other things that that it's it's almost beside the point. I mean, because we, we, go ahead. I was good. Uh, sorry, I hate to interrupt you, but I was, uh, no, you, no, you, I you, you just really made me think that that part of what the movie is trying to, part of the message of the movie is that what what uh, what war does to the minds of the soldiers, and how in order to be able to go off to war and fight, you really have to turn the the the, the enemy. If you're going to kill them, you have to almost turn them into animals in your mind mm-hmm. in order exactly. to be able to do that. And that's the movie did a really good job depicting that. Especially if you want to see it as a POV, you know, what, mm-hmm. what American right. soldiers thought of the enemy. It's true that they're trained to, I mean, think of how many decades it took for, for us to stop saying things like Jap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, and, you know, and the movie treats its audience with the intelligence to, to expect them to not, to, to not think that, to, to, not, to not have the overriding thought of, of, in your head when you come out of that movie thinking, boy, those North Vietnamese are horrible. That's not the point of the movie at all. Right. I think a lot of people maybe did come out of the movie with that feeling the same way that the same. I was thinking about Zero Dark Thirty too. How part of the reason why people were conflicted about Zero Dark Thirty is because some of the things it depicted were not fashionable to want to be supporting. And so, you don't want to associate yourself. You don't. Yeah, you don't want to like the same movie that Dick Cheney could like. Right. If Dick Cheney can find something to like about this movie, you want to distance yourself from that movie. In fact, that when when people started coming out like Rumsfeld and saying that that what they were showing was true, then that's when people started to 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 turn their back on it, to throw it under the bus because they didn't want to have to deal with that those conflicted messages that the movie was giving them. Right. I thought that that um, Bigelow and Bold did a really good job of balancing that um, in in the Hurt Locker. Uh, I, I felt like in Zero Dark Thirty, it was it was like the Deer Hunter in that it was a specific point of view movie, right? You know, this is yeah. the, what the CIA, this is the CIA's point of view, right? You know? Exactly, and a lot of people just didn't. They're not comfortable with that because they don't want to put themselves. It's uncomfortable to be in the mind of the CIA, just as it's un- uncomfortable to be in the mind of a soldier. And for me, it would be it's uncomfortable to be in the mind of a of a person who shoots a deer. You know, I'm not. I don't really like that type of person who, who's who's a who's a hunter. But you're, yeah. you're and that, that's that was the part of the deer hunter. I mean, that's what I liked about it that I found so complicated and weird was you're kind of dealing with so many different emotions. You know, you're yeah. you're feeling sorry for the deer, but you're not feeling sorry for these guys getting shot in the war. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a weird thing. It, it toys with your emotions that way. Yeah. yeah. Really amazingly complex movie. I'm just. I'm, I think that it's a fine, fine best picture winner. Although I would have preferred to see Coming Home win too. I think that Coming Home over the years stands has stood the test of time better, and is really if you can look at the look at it uh, now. I think it says a lot more about the war than than the Deer Hunter was able to express. I'd like to watch it again because I re- all I remember from that movie from the 70s. I haven't seen it in years. I tried to find it, but I couldn't get it. But um. Is the sex scene? That's like oh, yeah. all people were talking about. Can we talk about that for a little bit? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can I tell a story? I hope it's not the same one you but want to tell. But before you guys do, let me just... Is it maybe? Yeah, let me just um, preface just about this. The, I was, I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Sasha? I just wanted to preface it with, that's, I think, really overshadowed the movie in a lot of ways. It was the one mm-hmm. takeaway people had from it. They weren't thinking about the war. They weren't, you know, it was more about the sex scene. Uh-huh. Well, what Greg said is true in, in as much as you know, United Artists was coming apart at the seams uh, when, when it was time to release Coming Home, and they just didn't want the controversy of a war movie, of an anti-war movie, so they decided to sell it as a, as a, as a, as a romance, and they tried to sell the relationship and the sex, and there was plenty of that in the movie. That's part of the reason why Haskell Wexler wanted to try to tone that down, and Jane Fonda herself, as it, in the quote that you read, Sasha, she was maybe not happy with the way that the sex was portrayed, too, although she did say that people like Ron Kovic told her that seeing the movie improved his sex life, you know, just because it was almost like an instruction manual. But the sex scene, um, their first sex between John Voight and Jane Fonda, um, although it's possible for a paraplegic to have normal penetrative sex, they weren't going, Jane Fonda didn't want to have that. She wanted it to be oral sex. She wanted him to be getting her off orally. And But the way they had a body double come in to, to be Jane Fonda for the parts that she didn't want to film, and she could tell by the way that Hal Ashby was filming this, that he was filming it as if she was going to be supposed to be riding him, supposed to be on top of him, you know, Writing his erection, you know, and so she decided. Well, I'm going to mess him up when he comes to, when he films my close-ups. I'm just going to be really still. I'm going to be having an oral oral sex expression on my face, and and so he won't be able to cut it. He won't be able to cut me in and use the way he's doing it. So he was yelling at her. Hal Ashby was yelling, "Ride him, ride him, ride him!" And she just was just being you know motionless and having this look of of ecstasy on her face. But it was as if she was being you know orally pleasured. You know, I think I don't. I, but in the movie, I believe that it, that it comes off that he. That he is getting her up orally. That's right. Yeah, she totally won. I was just mm-hmm. I just watched it last night, and mm-hmm. and she whatever she did on set that day to get what she wanted comes comes across clear. There's one quick scene where you see the ass of her body double, and she's sitting on top of of John Voight's character, but the rest of it is there's no. It's unambiguous that that he gets her off orally, and mm-hmm. that was and she, and she wanted that because her point was is that good lovers aren't, aren't necessarily dependent dependent on an erection. That's not what makes a good lover. And, right. uh, and, and it's clear that that's the first orgasm she's ever had. And earlier in the film, there's the traditional sex scene with her and Bruce Dern, and he's just kind of mounting her and getting off and then rolling over, and she's totally not into it. So it's... it's there's uh, no way that's the first orgasm she's ever had. That's what she <laughs> says. She says that's never happened to me before. Probably it's from a guy. From, a, from yeah. a guy getting her off orally, maybe, but there's no yeah. way. You have orgasms in your sleep when you're a kid, you know what I mean? Um, just speak for yourself. No, seriously, come on. <laughs> no, you're right. Anybody who tells me that, I think they're lying. There's no way. Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> I meant that. I didn't mean her, her only orgasm ever. I mean, obviously, oh, okay. I'm not going to get into her sexual history. I meant <laughs> at, at, oh, I at, at the hands or mouth of a man. Yeah, yeah. But no. that really helped to make the movie a success. Once word got out that the movie wasn't just going to be a, 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 a war movie about paraplegic, that it was going to have a lot of hot sex in it, the movie was a really big success. And so it... Um, United Artists decided to well, all right, we'll get behind it and we'll push it. We'll give it some push for the Oscars. Yeah, I just remember it wasn't that. just Fonda; it was Voight too. He he wanted the part, but he didn't want it. The original script, his opinion of it was that it was just a message movie, and he didn't want that. He wanted it to make it into a love story, mm-hmm. and and they both got their way because it really is a love story, and I think that's a good thing. 
John Voight showed up on the set one day, and he, he had like a page and a half of this really political speech that he was going to make, and he threw the script down, and he said, I can't read this. These words on the page, I'm not going to be able to read this. This is not the character that I, that I signed up to play. And he looked at Jane Fonda, and she says, well, you've got to. this." She says, it's part of the big point of the movie. He says, well, then you read it. And she says, well, what will you say? What will you say? I'll read it, but what will you say? He says, I'll just listen to you, and I'll say something like how sexy you are when you're angry. And I think that's the way that it ended up being in the movie. I think that that's the way they kept it in the movie. But he was he was he did, he didn't want to make a polemical political um, polemic kind of statement with the movie, yeah. right? Because he knew that wouldn't be art, and he wanted mm-hmm. to make art. Right. I can I can see Jane Fonda and Ms. Magazine's frustration though in that it's always sex with women. You know, can it ever mm-hmm. not be? Uh, you know, even an unmarried woman with Jill Clayburgh, which is one of my favorite movies. You know, it's, it's she's right. It's all about choosing the guy, or not the guy. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. and look at the Deer Hunter. Look at the full spectrum of of experiences those male characters get to have, um, just story wise. And there, you know, it's really unlikely that there would be a movie with women where they would have those trajectories and there wouldn't be involved in some male love story. You know. Um, Interesting, isn't it, that Meryl Streep probably has a much more important role in The Deer Hunter than Jennifer Lawrence had in Silver Linings Playbook, but Meryl Streep won won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, whereas we know that didn't happen with Jennifer Lawrence. But Meryl Streep's character is much more a lead role actress, I think, in The Deer Hunter than than Jennifer Lawrence's role was. And again, again, uh, Meryl Streep didn't want to take the part initially because she was she was with John Cazale. They were having a relationship, but she didn't want to take it initially because it was. Um, uh, she said she said of her character, Linda is essentially a man's view of a woman, someone who's beaten down a lot by everybody, but who never gets angry about that. The actress was willing to make concessions in order to be near Cazelle, who, who confessed to Chimino that he was terminally ill with cancer. So, I mean, even in the Meryl Streep would never, I mean, she probably wouldn't say such things now because parts are so hard to get. But um, but it's interesting that the feminist movement, you know, inspired women and motivated women to think that way back then. And they don't think Talk- that way now. Right, and talk about being hard, parts being hard to get. This was only the Deer Hunter was only Meryl Streep's second feature film. It was only the second feature film she'd ever made, and the first feature film that she ever appeared in was Julia. Mm. She had that one tiny scene with Jane Fonda and Julia the year before, and blew it out of the park. She wears that incredibly that incredible red dress, and she's the ultimate uh, high society bitch, you know, in Julia. And then a year later, she wins the Oscar in her very in her only her second film for The Deer Hunter. And she pops. Interestingly, Jane Fonda wanted Meryl Streep for coming home uh, based on that little bit that she did in Julia, but she was already committed to Deer Hunter at that point. So wow. she, Jane Fonda lost out. That's great. Where are you getting this from? I want to read that book. Where did you uh, get that? Um, I think it was the Biskin article. Again, I'll send you the link after yeah. we're done. Okay, it was a cool. pretty good article. I don't like Biskin and I don't like his book, but it was an interesting article. Yeah, I do like him. I think he's. I, I like his. I like his back, behind the scenes stories. Okay, I want to move on to um, Warren Beatty because I have mm-hmm. to read you this funny thing because I uh, some some of the stuff that comes up in this book surprises me so much, but. Uh, you know, Warren Beatty made Heaven Can Wait, and, uh, it, you know, how many nominations did it get? It got a Best Picture nomination for sure. Um, but it said... I think it got a bunch, like eight or ten nominations, I'll bet. I'd be surprised if it didn't get that many. He was hugely popular, Warren Beatty. He was really the Ben Affleck of his time. <laughs> um, Paramount kept his publicity campaign firmly on Beatty, and in March... 
bought full-page ads in both New York and Los Angeles time depicting him standing on a cloud in a sweatsuit with angel wings. This was an iconic image we all know. There was no film title mentioned, just an offer from Paramount giving away free posters. The only thing we sell in the movie business is magic, explained Paramount's Gordon Weaver. We took this poster and thought it was magic because it makes you feel good, so we decided to give it away to people. They gave away 100,000 posters. The The Beatty collectors also bought Time magazine... When Warren smiled on the cover with the headline, Mr. Hollywood, critic Frank Rich, who is now my Twitter follower, thank you very much. Um, mm. Yeah. Impressive. Uh, That's great. So Frank, cool. I know. It's so scary, though. <laughs> Frank Rich wrote the fan letter inside. This is what Frank Rich wrote about Warren Beatty. I think it's going to surprise you because it surprised me. He is a millionaire many times over, but lives in two small, slovenly kept hotel rooms. He travels with the fastest crowd in the country, but rarely drinks and never snorts or smokes. He is offered the best jobs in the profession, but turns down most of them. His idea of sin is to eat ice cream. His idea of a great time is to talk on the phone. His idea of heaven is is to spend hours debating the pros and cons of Proposition 13. He wears dirty jeans three days in a row, chews vitamin pills, and remembers everything. He makes coast-to-coast plane reservations for six consecutive flights, then misses all of them. Almost the only appearance... um, I'm sorry. Almost the only... Oh, God, this is a word I don't know. 48 years old, I can't even pronounce this word. I'm going to spell it for you, Ryan. (laughs) I don't know it either. A-P-P-U-R-T-E-N-A-N-C-E. Appurtenance? Appurtenance. Yeah. uh, Almost the only... Characteristic, I like. It means characteristic, I think. Okay, so why don't you just say characteristic? (laughs) Um, Almost the only appurtenance consonant with his celebrity is an address book Don Juan would envy. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So... That's my That's word. great. That's impressive. And, and Frank Rich probably wrote that contemporaneously, right at the time in the 70s, he wrote that about about uh, about Warren Beatty. Yeah, it's so interesting yeah. that now, as we're getting into the later 70s, there's like, you know, writers we all know. Well, there's Ebert keeps popping up and David Denby and Frank Rich. You know, a lot of film writers who continue to write about film today lived through this and are in these books, which I find so fascinating. And Rex Reed wrote a lot back then, too. And Rex Reed had not yet become a, just a total curmudgeon asshole yet. You know, he, 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 he really liked The Deer Hunter, for instance. Rex Reed did. I mean, he hasn't always had such crappy, you know, uh, uptight taste as he does now. We, talk, we criticize Rex Reed a lot now because he, he seems like he's just become so stale. But he was pretty on top of it back then. He was really cool. I mean, he was he was openly gay, too, which was another cool thing to be back in the 70s. Yeah, really. God, Truman Capote was openly gay. Mm-hmm. Warren Beatty, though, one of, the, one of the absolute MVPs of the 1970s, most valuable players, when you look at the arc of his career throughout the 70s, the movies that he made and the movies that he supported and that he was able to get behind and enab- enable them to be made, like Shampoo never would have been made without him. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller would never have been made without him. He was a control freak, I think. I think that they say that he's, he was on set with Hal Ashby all the time, and once Hal Ashby made the mistake of letting... 
Warren Beatty looked through the camera viewfinder, and that was it. From that point on, Warren Beatty was directing Shampoo. Hmm. <laughs> and so Hal Ashby just sort of stood back and let him, you know, take over. But that had always been Warren Beatty's desire to become, to be the writer-director star, and he almost achieved that with Shampoo and then, and then took the final step with Heaven Can Wait. And then it says, um, at the end, after the Oscars were over, it says... Um, columnists call Warren Beatty a good sport for showing up at the governor's ball after losing all four of his nominations. But Liz Smith wrote, The big surprise to me about Hollywood's morning after is the general joy that Warren's heaven can wait flunked out in the winning. Warren is enviously admired and grudgingly respected in the business, but many feel that his ego is too big and they don't like him personally. Jack Haley Jr. didn't like seeing Beatty's date, Diane Keaton, walking around the governor's ball after refusing to be a presenter on the show. Um, uh, that, you know, I, people like Liz Smith, I don't have a, you know, I don't know where, where she's, how many people she interviewed in order to find that out about how, they, how Hollywood feels about Warren Beatty. Right. But when I hear something like that, it makes me feel like, all right, so you hate Warren Beatty, but so you're making it sound like everybody in Hollywood hates him. But I don't really, I'd like to see the facts behind that. Well, um, Heaven Can Wait was nominated for art direction, actor, supporting actor, supporting actress, cinematography, director, music, picture, and screenplay, and it only won art direction. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, was a huge. True. Hit. I know there's nine categories, and he 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 was nominated, but he was he, he's well liked enough to have been nominated four times. Right. No, I know yeah. that's yeah. true, yeah. but it it yeah. you know I've always thought that they didn't like him because of the way that Reds went down, and then Bugs. Mm. You know, Bugsy think, yeah, was also yeah, definitely. I think he really got got cheated with Reds, but it could be too with Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait just it was not substantial enough compared to The Deer Hunter and Coming Home. Right. Compared as great as Heaven Can Wait is, there can only be one best actor, and if John Voight is best actor, then Warren Beatty can't. And you know, so as much as, as I love it, Heaven Can Wait, I'm not sad that it that it got left out. It just doesn't feel weighty enough, and I and I, it's a shame because comedies always get that rap, and that's why they yeah. often never win. And they had only just the year before given Annie Hall, uh, um, you know, all four top Oscars for a comedy, and they probably were reluctant to do that two years in a row, maybe. Yeah, probably, and I I, I don't even think uh, Evan Can Wait is quite as substantial as even Annie Hall. Right, right. And and how do you deny John Voight in that role? I mean, he, mm-hmm. you know, all the... After, after his last speech, you, you can't. You really His can't. last speech in the film, you, I don't think you can. With the And all of the preparation he did as an actor, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff, so... When he first saw the script for Coming Home, he wrote to Hal Ashby, and he said, I will do, I will play any character that you want me to play in this movie. I would prefer to play Luke, but I'll play anybody. And then he lived and talked and, and, and became friends with all these paraplegics for two or three months before filming began, and learned, they taught him how to play basketball and everything, and they say that even after the movie was finished and after he won his Oscar and everything, for, for years he kept a wheelchair in his home, John Foyt kept a wheelchair in case any of the any of his uh, paraplegic friends showed up. He could play basketball with them in a wheelchair. <laughs> it's it's sad the 180 he's done politically, uh, on, I know, especially I don't know. when it comes to the war. He's very pro Iraq war. Yeah, what happened to him? I wonder. That's so he strange. Got older, people can, I guess. <laughs> I guess, but I mean, lots of people get older and they don't change from make a complete 180 like that and become the opposite of what they were when they were younger. It's, uh, I don't understand. I bl- maybe it's Angelina did something to him. He turned into a Republican asshole. 
Mm. Um, but interestingly, there were a couple of other popular movies, um, according to Inside Oscar, uh, though the uh, the Oscars were taken by these really deep, dark political movies. Um, the the box office was like Grease, you know, Superman, and Foul Superman Play. was the number two movie of the year, I think, right? And remember Foul Play with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn? Yep. <laughs> Those yep. were all the top of the box office. So it's interesting that at the same time as kind of what's going on now, which is you know the Oscar movies are so you know different than the movies that the public likes. You, you really see that this year with Grease and. Yeah, we did talk about last week about how uh, Star Wars and Close Encounters began the era of science fiction films becoming uh, big blockbuster moneymakers for Hollywood. And now this year, 1978, Superman was the first modern-day superhero movie, and it was a huge success. Interestingly to me, because I'm such a, you know, I'm always defending Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate was originally budgeted at $15 million and eventually cost something like $44 million. And they say that it that destroyed, ruined everything. Superman was originally budgeted at $15 million and ended up costing $55 million. Superman cost $55 million, $10 million, $11 million more than Days of Heaven. I mean, than Heaven's Gate. But still, it's Heaven's Gate who gets blamed for bringing, for the end of that, of, 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 uh, of extravagant budgets because it didn't make its money back. Superman at least made it made its money back, and so that's where it. Where it I don't know, but I could see where Michael Cimino got his, um, uh, you know, his this idea that he that he could do something like that. You know, his moxie, his confidence. I mean, the 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 way people were talking about the Deer Hunter and what he did with that movie would have set him up to mm-hmm. be that guy. You know, so he's like in the Coppola realm. Right. He was already controversial on the Deer Hunter, though, because I, I think Coppola, at least, well, I mean, he um, he was known in the industry, but he wasn't really known outside of the industry. And he had a lot of fights with all the writers, and, and the Deer Hunter went way over budget as well. And he and, and the studio was hate, the first cut of it that they saw, which was his eventual three-hour cut. They hated it. And um, they, um, they brought in um, Verna Fields, who was famous for being... Um, George Lucas's teacher at USC edited um, American Graffiti and Steven Spielberg's first film and is, is known as having a lot to do with the success of Jaws um, and sort of rescuing that picture. Mm-hmm. They brought her in to take a crack at it. it whatever she had done didn't end up going. It, it ended up being completely Chimino all the way. But he, you could you could sort of see trouble on the horizon in terms of people's reaction to to sort of, I, I, I don't know if it's his ego or, or what, but he, he, was, he was already a potentially troublesome character. Hmm. I think, yeah, right, even a, a month or two after The Deer Hunter won so many Oscars, I think people were, were already beginning to think that maybe it had been overpraised and that they'd overdone it and that now Chimino was going to be out of control in his next picture. And United Artists, which we have talked about, was in deep trouble because they had lost their CEO and they lost their chief of production who'd gone off to begin her orion they wanted to prove that they could still make a movie without those guys they wanted to prove that it didn't matter if they had the executives and if the executives were taking all their filmmaking talent you know united artists was determined to prove that they could still make a a, a great um prestigious movie and so they hired michael cimino and gave him a blank check mm. so Turns out they kind of, wrong. yeah that was kind of their fault too. Yeah, it's totally their fault, and I think mm-hmm. the the book, Final Cut, um, Stephen Bach's book about the whole situation. I think he he sort of tries to lay all the blame on Chimino's door, but it's obviously to me that it was it was the studio's fault. They because they 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 didn't know how to handle it. 
they didn't know how to handle it because they didn't have any executives who were experienced with handling um, uh, contentious filmmakers. These guys who took over for the for the people who had left United Artists to begin Orion uh, had no experience. They didn't know what they were doing. They were bankers. Mm-hmm. So after have after Deer Hunter, he made Heaven's Gate, and then. Um, in 1980, and then he'd make his next movie would be Year of the Dragon in 85, The Sicilian in 87, Desperate Hours in 90, The Sun Chaser in 96, and the last credit um, he for Michael Cimino on IMDb is To Each His Own Cinema, 2007. I confess I have not even seen Michael Cimino's last, most recent four movies. The last movie of his that I saw was Year of the Dragon, and I didn't Same. see anything he made after that because I have heard that. He, he did, something happened. He either because he wasn't, wasn't given the freedom to do what he wanted, or because he had lost his his nerve or something. He he had just he lost the knack. The, the, I think there's been a lot of revisionist history too. After after Heaven Heaven's Gate bombed, and then he got caught holding the bag for it. I think a lot of people even went back and looked at Deer Hunter and were like, "Well, maybe it wasn't quite the masterpiece we thought it was." And mm. I think his reputation was just shattered. Mm-hmm. I think so. It's a shame, really. It's amazing. It is it's a, a tragic. It's tragic. He's also an unusual person. I think he's always had an unusual personality. But have you seen recent photographs of him? I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I don't mean this in any way to be judgmental or anything at all. But um, he, you know, the producer in Beautiful Ruins, Sasha, who who had yeah. too much plastic surgery. I think Michael Cimino has done the same thing. And the way he dresses and his hairstyles and everything, it's almost as if he's uh, like Lana Wachowski. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I'm not kidding. There's, based on, on his appearance, there are rumors that he was going to go through a sex change. No way. Oh, yes, you were, yes. The, you go, look, look up a recent photograph of him I and you'll, you'll see immediately what we're talking about. So the other directors that year were uh, Woody Allen for Interiors, of course. He was written off pretty much for doing a Bergman copy. I think people over time have changed their minds on that. Speaking of revisionist, Woody Allen is one of those directors uh, – you know, he just keeps making work. You know, there is that argument that a director only has a few good movies in them and then they're played out and that's that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say that about directors, some directors. Um, people are now saying that Clint Eastwood is pretty much played out and Woody Allen's played out. Some people think Scorsese's played out, although I don't know how you could say that after Hugo, but some people think that. Um, or even after Shutter Island, I thought Shutter Island was really high, really underrated. People people automatically thought Shutter Island must be a failure because they decided to release it in February. That they decided not to throw it into the Oscar mix. But I think they just decided that we don't care about that, and they're, they're, we we are looking at the competition, and we figure that probably it's not going to be a big contender. So we're just really we're just happy that it's going to make a huge amount of money, which it did. It was it was Scorsese's biggest money maker of all time, I think. Yeah, but pain- already the people I think are coming back around on that one too and realizing mm-hmm. that it was a better film than they originally thought. But as far as interiors go, I would say I would put interiors as probably my my third favorite Woody Allen movie, right after Annie Hall in Manhattan. I would I would say interiors is my favorite, and so I can understand why people would. I think it's just because he. It's not. They didn't expect him to do something like that. It would be the like the last thing you would expect him to do on, as a follow up to Annie Hall, right? Yeah, it was sort of like Bob Dylan going electric. 
Yeah, exactly. They weren't, they weren't ready for it yet. I can totally deal with interiors. It's not my favorite of those. Stardust Memories would be my favorite. Stardust Memories is my favorite Woody Allen movie, but it's it's of the copy movies. Like, that's the Fellini eight and a half is, is mm-hmm. Stardust Memories. Mm-hmm. And also another woman. It's not a copy movie, but it does kind of follow Bergman's style. I don't know why anybody would fault a director or any artist for doing something like that. Like to me, that's growing as an artist is 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 kind of not mimicking, but being inspired by the way of a certain filmmaker tells right. a story and go, I want to make a movie like that, you know. And to have the balls to attempt it and to succeed so well, to absolutely pull it off. Not only did he just make a, he didn't just try to do it and, and fail. He tried to do it and succeeded. And in, in the way I see it. There's a tendency to want, especially movie artists, to stay in their little box and to keep doing the same things that they've done before and were successful for, and we're, we're resistant to them pushing the envelope and trying new things and doing different things. Right. And it's it's stupid, but that's the way it is. I get Scorsese, the, meanwhile, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I get the feeling that the directors that don't get played out as much are the ones who just like making movies and can do it in a reasonable time and, and keep it under semi under budget. The ones that are a pain in the ass, you know, the the visionaries, um, they tend to to burn out quicker. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's really the remarkable thing about Coppola. I mean, people people have been dismissive of his late career work, but here's a guy who has been at the top, top, top of his game, almost at the very, very bottom when he was about ready to flame out with Apocalypse Now, but sort of pulled the iron out of the fire, and has continued to be creative and interesting and challenging into late life. It's amazing. Yeah. For, for doing it as long as he's been doing it. And he's in it. Oh, I was just looking at pictures of Michael Cimino. Yeah, it looks like he has gone. He is a, a transgender. He's certainly really, 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 really metrosexual. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's an, and it's just unusual, isn't it? Because he was he's totally totally different from the way he was in the seventies. It's it's weird because it's unusual for our generation, but my daughter's generation, transgender is like as common as you know smoking pot at her, her school. It's like that's what every you know it's it's so common. Like I hear her telling me stories about it every day, but when I look at pictures of him, he. He does look like the guy that 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 um, is described in Beautiful Ruins. He has the face mm-hmm. of a child. Mm-hmm. It's pulled so tight that he looks like he has a child's face. It, I, I've been wondering what actor or what person would would really match that description in that movie, and this guy does, Michael Cimino. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Warren Scorsese started to say a minute ago after his follow-up that he decides to do after Taxi Driver, he decides to 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 really lay low for for a while. I think that I think it maybe he was astonished a little bit by what he had achieved and by the reaction and the, the, the and there there the the back the backlash and the, and the criticism he got for the ultra violence and for the um, having a thirteen year old play a prostitute and things like that he made some pretty mild movies but they were they were great and this year in nineteen seventy eight he made a, a documentary which of course was overlooked but it's a it's a fantastic documentary about the band uh, the music group uh, the, the last band. waltz yeah the last waltz yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's easily one of uh, one of his best films ever and and one of my favorite and it's it's really one of the best concert films ever made i think you had um uh, bob dylan joni mitchell neil young van morrison and along with that interviews with you know robbie robertson and different members of the band lee von helm um, all by funny fast talking scorsese 
I find I return to that music again and again. Um, even now, it still resonates. It's just fantastic. If you haven't seen it, see it. A couple of side things, and this maybe will end up on the cutting room floor, but I think um, Sasha mentioned it earlier that that uh, Deer Hunter was John Cazale's last film, and it should be pointed out since we've been going through each through the 70s that guy keeps coming up and he holds the record for all five of his features and it's actually six if you count godfather three which he's a in a flashback in we're all nominated for best picture godfather the conversation the godfather part two dog day afternoon and the deer hunter amazing isn't it the only movies he ever made basically and they're all nominated for best picture yep and he's really the standout in in godfather two I think. He's the soul of that movie. Michael gives up his soul, and and Fredo's still there with with the with the pathos. Yeah, and, and he's that way in Dog Day Afternoon too. There's something about that guy that just there's something sad about him. I just wish All that he had, had he had won for Godfather too, because I know De Niro won, but De Niro it seems like he obviously now nobody knew that John Cazale was going to die of cancer. But if they did know, they certainly would have given him that Oscar. Dumb, really dumb thing to say. <laughs> I was like, like when Craig said, that was the stupidest thing I ever said. <laughs> that was the dumbest thing I ever said. Why? What do you mean? I don't know. It just sounds dumb yeah, to say that. that. How are they going to know? You're right, though. I believe you're right. It, but it, back, I think that I respect the fact that, that that kind of thing wasn't really made public. You know? And it, and I really, it's amazing, too, to think of Meryl Streep and John Cassell together. Don't you think that's a, they're an interesting, fascinating couple? Mm. Yeah, I do too. Um, and and also to think that he's sort of semi responsible for her, her uh, jump to film from from theater. Right. Not that you know. I mean, she pops. She pops in Deer Hunter. You can't ignore her. You know, if she wasn't a star by then. You're gonna who is that? You know, she's amazing on screen. She takes sort of a nonish part and and blows it up. She's incredible. I mean, you can't look at anything else when she's on the screen. Um, and she's still doing it. She's still as incredible as she ever was. She's amazing. The other thing about 1978 is that obviously coming home and the deer hunter get all of the attention. And it's kind of funny that after a decade of Hollywood basically ignoring the elephant in the room, which was Vietnam, they finally confronted. There was another movie that year called Go Tell the Spartans with Burt Lancaster. It was another Vietnam flick that just kind of came and went. It didn't get any awards attention. People didn't really talk about it afterwards. But I think its reputation has grown over time. And it's a, a another really good Vietnam film that people is should that movie, uh, take out. Is it also known as Twilight's Last Gleaming? Uh, that I don't know. I know it as Go Tell the Spartans. I don't know if it has another yeah, title or because, not. Because Burt Lancaster made a movie called Twilight's Last Gleaming that was a, uh, that I haven't seen, but I've heard is a really extraordinary Vietnam film that, that is often overlooked. Did uh, Robert Aldrich direct it? No, this was Ted Post, I think. Oh, wow. So there's it uh, takes takes place early in the war when when the Americans were still advisors. We were not exact exact uh, quite combatants yet, and he played a um, military officer who had been in World War II and had been in Korea, and sort of knew the score and could see the writing on the wall and see how horribly wrong this was going to go. And yet there was nothing he could do about it because it was all chain of command. But wow, it, it offers another another perspective on on the war. That the other two films didn't didn't quite touch on. Okay, so that's so your homework assignment. Yeah, really. Go tell the Spartans and Twilight's Last Gleaming are two movies with both starring Burt Lancaster, both about Vietnam, that both have a reputation for being really, really high quality films that no one talks about anymore, and we've just talked about them. Hmm. 
And another movie that 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 we the other best picture nominee that we haven't mentioned at all this year was uh, Midnight Express. Mm. Did, that was on my list to watch, and I didn't get to it. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. That was Sasha. incredible. I didn't watch it, but I remember it. It had a huge impact on me when I first saw it. Um, directed by Alan Parker, his career kind of took a strange um, turn after that. Played by Oliver Stone. And screenplay by Oliver Stone, yeah. Midnight Express. Uh, it's about a guy who goes to Turkey and gets stuck mm-hmm. in a Turkish prison. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because he's mixed it's a comedy. Some... It's a comedy. It's like they do a tap dance. I think it's more like No, but that's and then there's some awful thing with a tongue <laughs> that happens. Somebody's tongue gets bitten off. It's a it's a really big movie among the gays. That's all I know, and I don't I can't I don't know why. Maybe because he's in a Turkish prison thing. Yeah, Naked Turkish. soap shower. I think is something to do yeah. with that. Um, Turkish, Turkish prison, I can come sort of see where it might come up. Turkish prison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we thought it was a Turkish bath. Why does it sound funny? It's like it's, it's only tragic. I know, because I think it's a true story, isn't it? So that's <laughs> yes. really not funny that we're making it's fun like of this. It's one of the it's, most it's horrific. terrible thing that this guy really endured in real life. Seriously, it is. It's one of the most horrific stories ever told. I don't know why we're yeah. laughing. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're punch drunk. <laughs> So after, literally, after Midnight Express, Alan Parker made fame. And then he made one of my favorite, most underrated Diane Keaton performances in Shoot the Moon, which I just love her in that movie so much. Uh, And and it definitely did not get critically acclaimed, that movie. But I thought it was great. He did Pink Floyd the Wall. He did Birdie. He did Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning, uh, The Commitments, Road to Wellville, Evita, Angela's Ashes. And the last movie he made was Life of David Gale. I guess he must be gay. (laughs) Yeah, I think pretty much. I think so. Yeah. I I think he's got a really good body of work myself. Yeah, he does. Surprisingly good. uh, Yeah. He didn't quite burn out, although 2003, that's a long time ago. He isn't dead, is he? Hmm. Yes, he, uh, no. No, he's not dead. He was born in 1944. He he might as well be after David Gale, though. That one really, (laughs) that flopped hard. That was like, like mocked openly by people, if I remember right. (laughs) Kevin Spacey, The Lost Years. Yeah. (laughs) That was part of his. I think it was Kevin, yeah, it was Kevin Spacey and Kate Winslet. I remember that. That was a, I was already doing the Oscar site by then, so I remember the studios trying to sell that one, but. Didn't, didn't play. No, but what a shame. So he hasn't made a movie since then. That's too long to go without uh, I wonder if that's why or if there's something else going on. I don't know. I don't know what his biography is. Well, it's really the only... I mean, unless you count Evita, it's really the only movie that he made that really bombed hard. You know? Um, right. Most of his movies, you know, there can sometimes be weird, like Angel Heart was sort of, you know... I, like I loved Angel that at Heart. the time, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of Mickey Rourke's last great things before he had his resurgence. I mean, it looks mm-hmm. like he really, really took a major dive with with David Gale. Hmm. The other movie in 1978 that is iconic, that is a big uh, in everyone's childhood memories, that got completely overlooked by the Oscars, is Halloween. Halloween oh, yeah. came out in 1978. Oh, no kidding. Really? Yeah. God. That was a box office sensation in its own right, based on how much it cost. Right. 
Wow. So in, in a parallel universe, the Best Picture nominees might have been like, you know, Grease and Halloween and <laughs> those kind of movies that everybody remembers from from that year. You know, um, Halloween is still one of the most talked about and remembered movies uh, of, of and most and most influential, really, when you think about the what it spawned, the, t- the type of movies that came after it, although none of them, li- very few of them lived up to what it started, it started a, a complete n- new trend in teen horror movies. I guess maybe for, Carrie. For better and for yeah. worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys. It was really great talking to you. It was a fun night. I'm happy. Happy the way this turned out. Sorry to cut it so short, but I'm trying to make it a no, little less. No, it's good. No, that's good. We could have kept going on and on and on, but that we could keep going on and on every night. So I know. We could have another three hours left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Night, night. night. Okay, good night. Okay, Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to episode 30 of Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week with another episode, maybe from the Cannes Film Festival. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music today was in honor of the great Martin Scorsese film from 1978, The Last Waltz. And we start started it off with uh, The Weight, um, f- which is the band with playing with the Staples singers.